Hello, hello, happy Sabbath. Welcome to church. Welcome to Rock Fellowship. Thank you, thank you. We're glad you could join us today for church, whether you're watching online, whether you're going to watch this at some later part in your life because you're in the woods somewhere or you're at Bible camp. We're glad you could join us for church this afternoon. Thank you for coming out. If you're just joining us, if you've been with us for the better part of a month now, we're currently in the middle of a series. We're currently part four of what we're calling the worst sermon ever or what we can learn from the worst sermon ever. And this is a series where we go through the book of Ecclesiastes, a book where for a lot of us, we have this, has this reputation of being a kind of existential, depressing, kind of like heart-wrenching book that you read through and, and you don't know what to do with the rest of your life about. It's a quick recap. Like I said, we're in part four of this series. So if you missed any of the three previous series to catch you up to today, what we're talking about so far. In part one, Pastor Chris uh, kicked off the series by talking about this phrase, under the sun. And part one really set the stage for what the book of Ecclesiastes is about. And it sets a very important sort of perception for the rest of the book. The teacher, the, the person that you hear the most in the book of Ecclesiastes, is making certain observations about life about life as he, in particular, life under the sun. And we kind of define this as this sort of life without God, life on earth, life without eternity and heaven and salvation in mind, just life as we know it. In part two, we talked about three common places that we can turn to to find meaning, but we really cannot. So we talked about finding meaning in pleasure or good things, finding meaning in work and productivity and, and production, and finding meaning in wisdom and self-betterment and advancing yourself. And we talked about how while those three on paper can seem like decent places to start finding value and meaning in life in, at the end of the day, if you put all your eggs in one of those baskets, it doesn't really lead anywhere meaningful or purposeful. And last week, um, we talked about this idea of these seasons of life and how really, in a certain perspective, that these seasons of life kind of dictate what your life will be. And ultimately, do you truly have control of what the seasons of your life bring and what your life will ultimately look like? And we talked about the best way to enjoy life or enjoy the gift of God that God has provided for you is to surrender control of your life to God and trust in the one that can see through the heaven of life. This week, um, it just so happened that we're just kind of going chronologically through the book. Um, in chapter 4, this, for me, of the passages we've studied so far, Ecclesiastes 4 is probably the most relatable and personal for me um, on, on a, set, a few different levels, and especially if you're here joining us at Rock Fellowship, whether you're online, part of our online community, or joining here in person, um, this may strike a little more applicable to your life today, especially as it pertains to what you are doing here as a part of Rock today. So before we go any further, I ask that you join me in a quick word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much for this time. And we come together, and really, it's easy for us to take granted of these little things like coming together and worshiping you and seeing all the different faces on this Sabbath, Lord. I want to pray for all the people that are part of our community that aren't currently and presently here, Lord, that I ask that your blessing and protection be with them. Father, as we just sang, Lord, may you make new wine out of us today, Lord. May you do your will in us in our lives. May you do your will with me, Lord, and speak through me. But, Lord, to anyone that's listening, Father, Lord, Soften our hearts and our minds. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, Lord, what your word, what your message, what your will for us today is. I praise in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we're going to start with um, really the beginning of chapter 4. So Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 1, 2, 3, we'll have it on the screen, where this is basically how the chapter starts. And the teacher starts by making a few observations. Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead, who had already died, are happier than the living, who are still alive. Very strong, happy start. But better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. And this 
this passage kind of sets the tone and the premise for the perspective that the author has for the rest of this chapter. And again, it's not the happiest of beginnings. It's not this grand, like, glitter transition. It's very harsh, like, dang, guys, there are bad things happening in the world. And the main point that this author makes is I've noticed and observed that in life under the sun, in the the realms of just life here on earth, from your birth to death, there are a lot of people that do a lot of bad things. There's a lot of injustice in the world. And the reality is a lot of them get away with it. I've seen a lot of injustice. There are oppressed, and no one comforts the oppressed, but the oppressors have power. And so he makes this this observation, if you will, that in life under the sun, bad things happen. Bad people do bad things, and a lot of times, they get away with them. Doesn't that suck? And that's like essentially how he starts this passage. And again, it's important to know one thing. He's talking about this perspective of life under the sun, where This is all we have. You're born, you experience life, you die, and that's it. And if we're being honest, from that perspective, it's true. It's very, very true that there's a lot of people in life that live their life and do terrible things to other people, oppress other people, do vile injustices to others, and in a lot of ways, simply just get away with it. And if this life was all that we have, if there was no grand arbiter of justice and no afterlife and no salvation or anything after this, in a lot of ways, they would have effectively gotten away with the injustices that they have. And again, the teacher makes this, he doesn't say that it's good or bad, he just says, look, this, you know this to be true, that in this life under the sun, injustice happens to people, people get away with it, people are oppressed, and life doesn't always favor the good. In fact, unfortunately at times, it favors the bad and the evil. This I've observed to be true of life under the sun. And to be honest, if this life is truly all that we have. You, me, being born, life, working, all the the day-to-day life of life. If this is all we have, it's very true. And the teacher, from this perspective, is someone that's fortunate enough. It seems like he's neither an oppressor or an oppressee. He's just observing that this happens. And even he, as just an observer, is someone that's filled with hopelessness. Like, dang, it's it's terrible that this happens. And it's the reality, and, and it fills me with hopelessness. But think about the person that's going through this, someone that goes through life oppressed and having injustice done to them, all the more worse. And if you're the oppressed and you live under the sun, there's, there's, he makes a statement that there's no one that's going to help you because under the sun, everyone looks out for themselves. There's no one to comfort the tears of the oppressed and the oppressors have all this power. This I've seen to be true in life under the sun. That whether you're the oppressor or someone that's, whether you're the oppressor or someone that's looking to avoid being oppressed, the teacher observes a world where a reality of life is that people look out for themselves and that people do bad things sometimes because they're looking out for themselves and sometimes they get away with it. So after establishing this fact that most of us can agree on, yeah, bad things do happen under the sun, he makes this interesting pivot. And this is where I feel like the bulk of our, our message here and the application between you and I comes into play. He said this perspective about, I've noticed these things on life on earth. Injustice, bad things happen. People tend to look out for themselves. And then he makes this interesting statement. He makes this... He describes this relationship between work, or the word he uses in the NIV is toil, and relationships, or some versions of the Bible say um, having a, a companionship with others. So this relation between work and toil, and relationships and companionship. And at first, it seems like a random, two very random components of life to compare with another. He talks about the things you do, the work, the day-to-day life, the toil that you go through. And he talks about in relation with What are your interpersonal relationships? What are your interactions with the people around you? And again, he starts by talking about two examples. He paints these two examples of men 
that live a certain life and that have meaninglessness in the way they live their life. We'll start with Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 4. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 4, he says, And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaninglessness, a chasing after the wind. He makes this observation that I've noticed that a lot of what people do, he almost describes this competitive nature, that what people do, what people strive for, the reason people work, is to essentially one-up their neighbor, one-up the person next to them, right? Keeping up with the Joneses to have a better X, Y, Z than the person next to them. And he says, this is meaningless. And then he paints another picture of another man in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 7 through 8. And he says, again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man, a different man, all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked. And why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. He paints these two very sad pictures of people looking at their life. One is an observation of someone that he sees, right? A man or a woman, someone whose main motivation in life is to one-up the person next to them, right? The reason they do what they do is this competitive spirit, this envious nature. And then he paints another picture, which I would argue these two people are not completely unrelated, of someone that finds himself at some point in his life, some way describe this as modern day, like a midlife crisis, where you look back on your life and this man asks himself, for whom am I toiling? I've come to this point in my life. I've worked. I've accumulated a certain amount of wealth and goods. And I look back on my life, and I can't help but ask, why did I live my life the way that I did? And he specifies that this man is, is all alone, neither a brother nor a friend, a son. He's by himself, and he looks at the way he's lived his life. He looks at who he is today, and he can't help but wonder, did I make the right choices to get to where I am today? For whom did I toil? Why did I deprive myself of all these things, make these sacrifices, and work so hard to get to where I am? And the teacher makes his observation. He says, that life that he lived alone is meaningless. And again, to back this up a little bit, that's what it means for us. I feel like there is this connection here between the work that these people have done, whether it's this competitive spirit that compels someone, or whether it's this self-sustaining nature of the work that someone did in relation to the relationship that they had with other people. What was your relationship with others? For the per first person, it was this competitive nature where he or she felt the need to one-up the people next to them. And for this other person, it was to be by themselves, to fuel their own life and their own desires. And I imagine that for a lot of us, Every single person in this room that I would argue from the age of youth grade, so about seventh grade and up, you've asked yourself this question at some point in your life, especially anyone that either goes to work every day or goes to school every day. And it generally happens at the very beginning of the day or at like very late at night, where maybe you've woken up and you're a student, you woke up, your parents woke you up for school, and you ask yourself, why am I doing this? What is the point of waking up? Maybe you woke up for work one day and you're like, I really, really... I don't want to go to work today. And you ask yourself, why? Why am I doing this? Why do I drag myself out of, out of bed every day to toil and do this work? And for a lot of us, we can probably relate to this person, even again, even if you're younger. And this hypothetical person that the teacher has created is someone that's older looking back on their lives. But I would argue, we asked this question in Sabbath school, and every single one of the kids pretty much said, yeah, I've asked myself that question. Like, why, for whom am I getting up and going to school and going, doing the homework and all these projects? It's a very relatable thing to ask ourselves. And the question that this person asked, the question that this teacher asked, is not, it's very interesting, it's not why do you do what you do. The question that the teacher poses for this person is, for whom are you doing this for? 
It's not why do you toil, why do you work, why do you go to school every day, why do you get in your car and go to work every day. It's who are you doing that for? And it's interesting because for the first person, for the first person that he painted, right, this person that is fueled by competitive success, in a sense, you could argue they're doing it for other people. In a sense that other people can look at their life and be like, dang, wow, your life is awesome. Your life is amazing. I can't believe you have or did all these things. Because again, their main motivation, as far as the teacher observed, was to, to compete with someone else, envious of others. And the second person had a totally different response. The reason they did what they did, the reason they toiled and worked, was for themselves. The who in that instance was, I did that for me. Where he looks back at his life and he says, I have no one around me. I have no son, brother, friends, whatever like that. He finds himself alone, but he has done something, clearly, because he can look at his wealth and his achievements. But if you were to ask that person, hey, man, who did you do this for? Why did you toil? Why did you work? His answer probably would have been, well, I did this for me, for my, for my betterment, for my comfort, for my ambitions, for my goals. And this person, as Solomon kind of winds out, looks back on his life alone and finds that his work was meaningless. The question is, why do you toil and why do you do what you do? And actually, this part of this book is where Solomon kind of introduces the aspect of toil and kind of unravels that a little bit. And we talked about it a little bit in, in part two about, you know, you can't really find meaning in toil. But here, Solomon creates this very interesting combination, this kind of relationship between the work you do, the meaninglessness you find in your toil, has a direct correlation to the relationship you have with the people around you. Again, he paints these two pictures of and I imagine no one here wants yourself or your kids to find themselves in that situation down the road. No one wants to wake up one day alone asking themselves, why did I work so hard? Who did I work so hard for when you look around by yourself? No one wants to wake up one day and, and feel like they did everything they did for someone else for the benefit of, because some of you, they wanted other people to look highly upon themselves. Neither of these situations are ideal, and they're not situations we want to find ourselves in. But Solomon, again, makes, or the teacher makes this observation that perhaps a lot of the people reading this book can find themselves in those shoes where you may wake up one day and you ask yourself, why did I do this? Why did I toil so hard? What is the meaning behind all of my work? Or better yet, the question that he asks in the second person he creates, for whom did I toil? For whom did I do all of these things for? And the teacher, after this, he kind of pivots. He talks about this weird, and when you read this, the chapter in order, I was very confused, like, why... It almost feels like Proverbs, where sometimes in Proverbs you read through and there's a lot of verses that just come one after another and they don't necessarily seem related. But right after he paints this picture of this lonely working man, we'll call him, he talks about this in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, the very next verses. He talks about this, and again, if you have certain Bibles, the title here is The Advantages of Companionship, some may say. And it says, two are better than one. Again, just this abrupt transition. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. And as I was reading this, and I was like, what? And I, and I felt like I was missing a page in between. He talks about these two people that have worked and find meaninglessness in their toil, and they clearly have life regrets. And then he transitions really quickly into... 
it's good to have people around you, right? This idea of companionship, of having relationships. And I was reading and I was praying. I felt like he was essentially answering his question. He says, listen, if you don't want to be like man number one or man number two, where you live a life of regrets and you feel like your toil has been meaningless, here's what you have to do. And in a word, I feel like Solomon or the teacher's answer to this paradox and this meaninglessness toil of life is community, the idea of relationships and putting people around you. When you read through this passage, if you can put it on the screen one more time, there's a few key things he talks about, right? He talks about um, there's a better return for your labor. If either, if someone falls down, someone can help pull you back up. And if two lie together, you can keep warm and comfort one another. And you can defend and fire for one each other. He ends by saying three cords of a strand, right? A three-corded rope is not easily broken. And I feel like when you read this, he's describing a very specific relationship. And the relationship he's describing has two dynamics. And this, out of his, uh, this list of requirements, this advantageous relationship that he, that he describes that can help you find meaning in life is one that, where you're able and expected to both help others and to allow others to help yourself. Every single one of these scenarios revolves around you leaning on someone and allowing someone else to lean on you, keeping warm together, pulling someone up that has fallen down, being back-to-back. -back. Some, some versions describe that last verse of defending each other, about being back-to-back -back and protecting each other's back. And again, Solomon describes this very specific relationship of, in his answer to, to combating the meaningless toil of life, he says, you need to find a relationship that's like this. And the two aspects that I feel like he points out are a, a, a relationship or a community where you help others, and B, you allow others to help yourselves. And depending on who you are, one of these things is significantly easier to do than the other. For some of us, it's much easier for us to come to the aid of others. And we're more than happy to host people, help people in need, lend a helping hand, be there for that person. And it's much, much harder for you to allow people into your life and to help you and, and disclose when you're in a time of need. And for other people, it's the opposite. You love being helped. Please, I need all the help I can get. But it's much harder for you to then respond to the call of others and come to their aid and help out when someone else is in need. For me personally, it's much, much easier uh, for me to help others than to accept help for myself. And initially, for me, I was like, I mean, that's definitely the better of the two to lean towards, right? And it hit me uh, earlier this year. Oh, uh, no, that's uh, earlier last year. Uh, some of you may know, when I moved to, first moved to Portland, Oregon, I had, I showed up to Dan's house with a backpack, a duffel bag, a suitcase, and like this plastic tub. And that was my whole life. And I lived in his guest bedroom for a little bit, and eventually I found my own apartment. The problem was I was in this, in this apartment, and I had nothing. I, I had the exact same things I came with, a backpack, and I just, just the stuff in there. No furniture, no, and honestly, I didn't even know what I didn't have or what I needed. And if you were there at the time, um, there was a few calls that went out in, like, the cacao random chat, and a bunch of people at church um, donated stuff, and basically, like, put my life together for me. Honestly, I moved into an apartment, and it was like just a bare box, and by the end of the week, people had donated like couches and beds and lamps, and like some of you guys took me shopping and just said, hey, you need to buy all this stuff. And there are moments when some of you guys took me out and like grocery shopping, and hey, you're going to need this, you're going to need this, you're going to need this. And there were moments when I was like, I don't think I need that. And they're like, trust me, you do. And they put it away, and a week later, I was like, oh my goodness, I totally needed that, thank you. And that was my life, and when I settled in, and again, I had this enormous amount of help where people helped me, and then later, um, some of you may know, I had a friend move up to Portland, a high school friend together, and I, we had this brilliant idea of, hey, we should live together, save on rent, and you know, we can have a two-bedroom, and it can be fun to have a roommate. And so I had to move out of my one-bedroom into a two-bedroom. But luckily for me, we were in the exact same complex. So we moved maybe like, I don't know, 
not that far, a few, a few thousand feet. And I figured, how hard could it possibly be? And in that moment, my friend was like, dude, like, aren't you a pastor of a church? Just get your kids to help you move. And I was like, no, 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 I couldn't. I couldn't burden. I don't want to tell anybody. So I didn't tell anybody. And what happened was he had moved. We had paid for our rent for the next house. And we had a deadline to move out of the apartment into the new one by. And there was a few factors that came up. A, this was just before Cannon Beach, the youth Cannon Beach retreat. So I'd, you know, I was going to be gone for a weekend, so I had to take care of this sooner than later. And B, my friend conveniently told me on, like, Thursday that, hey, man, i got a party I got to go to in Seattle, so I'm not going to be here this weekend. I can't help you move. And, you know, the despair that sunk in, I was like, you know what? On one hand, I was a little upset. But on the other hand, I was like, I don't have a one-bedroom apartment. Like, I don't even have that much stuff. And so he helped me a little bit. And then it hit Friday night where I came back from all the church stuff I was doing. He was gone. And I realized that there was still a lot of stuff. I, you know, I don't know if you've ever moved, but like the last few stuff you got to move is like three, four times heavier. And it feels like stuff just pops out of nowhere. There's stuff that underplaces you didn't know you had. And that last minute scramble, I remember just being so lost of like, oh my goodness. Like this is, and I remember I was carrying this box of, I don't even know what it was. And I was like, wow. This, this was a mistake. I totally, it was not worth the struggle that I had to go through. All I get out of this, all I got out of the experience was this sermon illustration. This is the only thing I got out of all of that labor. And really, in a lot of ways, that seems like, I don't know, I think I tricked myself into feeling that that was the noble, kind thing to do. Don't bother others. Don't have them come into your life. Just take care of it yourself. But if I'm truly being honest with myself, and the reason why I think this is such an important part of, especially the illustration that, that the teacher in Ecclesiastes uses, the reason it's so important to not only help others, but to be willing to let others help yourself, is that if I really looked in the mirror and asked myself why I wouldn't let people help me, it almost came from a pace of, of, of pride and ego of like, no. No, no, no. I, I can help others, but I don't need people to help me. I don't want to let people into my life and know that, hey, man, you really should have packed a little bit more today. You really put this off to the last second. But a lot of times I realize that when I shun people off or prevent people from helping me in, in my life, allowing the help to come to me, allowing people to come into my life and know that I need help, a lot of that really comes from a place of pride and ego and keeping people as arm's length as much as I would like to think that it's the noble right, altruistic thing to do. So again, Stalin makes this very important point that for this relationship, this meaningful relationship to happen, if you fall, you have to be willing to let someone pick you up. If you're cold, you have to be willing to let someone warm you. If you are in a fight and in trouble, you have to be willing to let someone get your back for you and come to your aid, come to your cause. Despite the fact that it may hurt your ego or your pride, this is necessary to create a meaningful relationship. And I think it's a lot harder today in society because there's this almost higher value placed in this idea of being self-made, right? The self-made billionaire, the self-made person that pulled themselves through college by themselves, the person that by themselves created a business from scratch and now can support all these things. A lot of us probably went through school with the, with the glamorous idea of, I want to be my own boss one day, make my own hours, make my own money, do whatever I want. This idea of being self-sustaining is in part a kind of romanticized idea, and especially in today's society. The idea of being self-made is it's a very covetous and very complimentary title to have. And I was thinking about this, um, because especially, I think in a lot of ways, I can relate to this idea. And I thought about, who is someone that I feel like fits that mold? And I thought about it, and he's not as popular anymore, but when I thought about 
this celebrity that I thought of, about who's like, I feel like is truly self-made, came from nothing and created, accomplished this amazing life. I think of, of Arnold Schwarzenegger. And I don't know why this guy, I feel like I've used him a, several times in sermon illustrations, but if you don't know who he is, especially if you're younger and you don't, you know, he's not as relevant anymore, I feel like. His resume is insane. Like the things that he accomplished, he came, he grew up very like dirt poor. And I got this from a speech that he gave at a commencement address at a college. But he talks about how he grew up very poor in Austria. And he describes the level of poor he was in that he remembers it being a very big deal for his family when his father could finally purchase a refrigerator. And that was like a huge deal for them. So this is like dirt poor. And as a teenager, he pulled himself out of poverty by just lifting heavy things off the ground. And he got to a point where he slowly entered as a teenager, like weightlifting competitions, and he became a bodybuilder in Europe. And then he eventually came to America as an immigrant later in life. And he just kept doing the same thing. He came with nothing. He just got a gym membership, just started lifting more things, got this jacked body, and became very famous for it. And that was like his claim to fame. His initial claim to fame was he was like the greatest bodybuilder of his era. Despite coming to America, to a different country, with little to, mon- little to no money, having the thickest accent ever, like he, by all means, prevailed and accomplished the American dream, which is more than enough, right, for anyone to be like, that is a huge accomplishment. And then he was like, no, despite the fact that I have this very thick accent, I just came to America, I want to be a movie star in Hollywood. And then he did. He became a movie star. And it's actually, I didn't know this until I read up on it a little bit, but the first few movies he filmed, his accent was so thick that people dubbed over him in post because nobody could understand what he was saying. And he turned that into like his greatest calling card. Like that's like his brand now, that Arnold Schwarzenegger voice. Like it's so iconic. And he became a movie star that was an actually essentially like a superhero, right? He created these movies and franchises that made hundreds of millions of dollars. And I, the only movie, to be fair, the only Arnold Schwarzenegger movie I've watched all the way through is Kindergarten Cop. And the only reason that is is because for whatever reason, we had the VCR at home and my mom wouldn't let me watch Terminator. So that's the only thing I know about him. And I distinctly remember I was in elementary school and we were watching Kindergarten Cop. And my friend was like, dude, you know that guy? It's crazy that like, he did this and now he's like the governor of our state. And I was like, what? He's like, yeah, dude, you don't know? This guy is the current governor of California. And I was like, since when? He's like, right now. That man, John Kimball, the detective in Kindergarten Cop, is the current governor of our state. And I was like, how? Why? Who? Who is this man? Right? And if you look at, like, everything he's accomplished from being, like, coming from nothing to establishing, and now he's, like, you know, a very, very wealthy man, and he's done all these amazing things, right? No one else can really say they've been the greatest bodybuilder of their era, a superhero, created superhero movies, and also became go- governor of one of the biggest states in America. And you look at his life, and you're like, this, this is, a, this is the man that pulled himself from his bootstraps and, like, created something out of nothing. And this is, like, a man that can take pride in what he's accomplished. And one of his most well-known kind of speeches that he gave, and again, this was at a commencement address at, at a college, he talks about this, about who he was and all the things that he's accomplished and that he's the Terminator, but he's also the governor and he did all these amazing things. His whole point when it comes to the concept of being a self-made man, the point that he makes is there is no such thing as a self-made man. And he talks about how his first Thanksgiving when he came to America, he was Again, dirt poor. All he could afford was a gym membership and a small apartment. And that first Thanksgiving, a bunch of the bodybuilders from the local gym came over with food and utensils and pillows and basically furnished his house for him and gave him food and basically sustained him. And he talks about moments like those are what he remembers 
as why he can never with a clear conscience ever talk about how he himself is this self-made man that came out of nothing. And for him, he ends this speech. This man who, by all accounts, has little to no religious affiliation, especially now with Christianity, he makes his claim. He says, this is what life is all about. Life is about recognizing the help you've received and choosing to help others because of that. That was how he ended his speech. The Terminator, the governor of California, this super jacked man, his whole thing, his view on life, again, it's, it's not particularly religious, as he looks back on all his accomplishments is, I realized all the help that I've received, and then I realized because of that, I should then do the same for others. And he ends by saying, that's what it, it's all about. And he makes this, this observation, and it's eerily similar to the one Solomon makes. And remember, in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, all of these observations that Solomon is making are from the perspective of under the sun. There is no salvation. There is no life after this. This is just your life here on earth. And he makes this point, the subtle truth that he's implying, both Solomon the teacher and Arnold Schwarzenegger for what it's worth, is that there is a, a practical wisdom. There is a practical wisdom that's in your best interest when you choose to become a part of a community, where you enter into a relationship where you give and you allow it to be taken as well. There is something that it does something, it adds value and meaning to your life. That being a part of community that you can't really find on your own. And when I say that, I imagine there may be some people here, especially if you've been at Rock uh, for a while and you listen to a lot of our sermons. Pastor Chris and I and you know, our guest speakers here, we very often talk about the notion of community, right? Be a part of our community, get plugged in, get involved. And we've preached at least a dozen sermons on the, on the advantages and the perks of being part of our community. And, and I, I would like to think that a lot of our members here, we take pride in being a loving community. It's part of the reason why we as a church exist. However, there are probably people here that are watching online or here in person that hears that answer, that hears that Solomon's answer, that the teacher's answer to finding meaning in life is to be a part of community, and you're maybe a little disappointed. You're like, that's not the answer I was hoping for, right? I want like an existential, like, give me an edgy statement, right? Oh, give me like a, wreck me with like a biblical truth. Like, I want something more. Like, being a part of community, like, that's not really the answer I want to hear when it comes to finding meaning in life. And maybe for some of you, you've heard our appeal to become involved in community several times. And for you, your answer is, community's fine. I see the benefits of community and being in a relationship where I help others and I allow them to help me. But to be honest, I'm fine. I'm good where I am. I'm, I'm self-sustaining. I'm happy where I am. I have my own routine. And, for, and I don't want to be like ageist or anything, but I imagine that a lot of people say this as you're older. Maybe you have your parent and you have kids and you say, Oh, being socially active, you know, making new relationships, that's a, that's a young person's game. Me, I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm older now. I'm an introvert. I just want to keep to myself. I got, I'm very comfortable with who I am and where I'm at right now. You know, let the younger kids, let the young adults, let the youth kids make new friends and become socially involved. I feel like it's a very easy thing to say where you may even justify it by saying, you know, when I was younger... When I was younger, I was very socially involved. I was involved, I was active, I was engaged. You know, like I, I was very extroverted, and so I was all about church and making new friends and being a part of community. But, you know, I got older, and, you know, I found I was a little more introverted, so it's just easier for me to keep to myself now. And so I feel like I've done my time, so thank you. I get that community is important, but I don't think I need it. I think I'm fine where I'm at. And I feel like the reality of what Solomon is saying, and I say this respectfully, is that while that may be true, that, you know, you may not feel the need to make new friends and, you know, make new memories at this stage in your life, 
What Solomon is saying is not that you should become a part of community for the fun memories. He's not saying that you should become a part of community and learn to give and learn to take so that you can have someone to eat with or that you can you know, laugh a little bit more and have more friends and followers on your social media. Solomon makes a much deeper existential point. And what he's saying is, being engaged in community, helping others, and allowing them to help you isn't just about making new friends for the sake of being social or for the sake of having fun memories. He's saying that you should be a part of community because living with and for others isn't just some feel-good statement. It's a way that you and I can find meaning in the heaviness of life. In other words, life becomes inherently more meaningless and more heavy when you live simply for yourself. That's what Solomon is saying. And I know that a lot of times we make this appeal about community and getting plugged in and join a small group and, you know, talk to guests and welcome them. And for a lot of us, it's like, oh, yeah, community is a feel-good, it's a feel-good aspect of my life. I love having friends. And again, if you talk to a lot of the youth about what is the value of friendship, it's so I can have fun, someone that I can hang out with. And while that's all good and true, that's not really what Solomon is talking about. His truth, the biblical insight that he's giving us in the, in the midst of all the heaviness of life is yes, there are a lot of superficial benefits to having friends and making relationships with others, but there's a much deeper benefit, and it's that when you live life for just yourself, in your own bubble, for your own comforts, for your own self-preservation, you inherently start to lose meaning in life. And again, the ultimate answer to the book of Ecclesiastes that we talk about is, yes, ultimately the only person that, has, that you can find true meaning in life is through God. And we talked about that in part one, where the fear of God is there's a, there is a way to live life where you can find meaning, and it's only through God. But in chapter four, Solomon adds this sort of insight, and just as Jesus himself would reiterate thousands of years later in his earthly ministry, the two most important things you can do as a follower of Jesus is A, love God wholeheartedly with your entire being, and B, Love the person next to you as much as you love yourself. And again, very rarely does Jesus say that so you can have people to eat with or so you can have fun or memories or so you can, you know, laugh about this and that. It's because of the deeper truth in what he's saying here. And I know that in a lot of ways, there are a lot of people here that are very involved and active in community and that at times, being active and involved in community, a lot of you guys have experienced this, it's not the easiest thing in the world. I know there are a lot of people here. As a pastor of this church, I see a lot of the benefits of having members that are very involved. A lot of you guys have sacrificed things, time, money, energy, and that you found out, maybe you responded to an appeal and you joined a small group and you found out that driving out to someone's house once a week isn't always the easiest thing to do. Sometimes you just want to stay home. Sometimes you want to relax after a long day of work. Sometimes you don't want to, you're behind on the reading and so you try to cram the reading in and it takes a lot of work and you're part of, if you're a part of our church ministries, whether you teach Sabbath school or you help with potluck, you're on a praise team or a myriad of other things that are the ministry available that are at this church, you know first and foremost that what Solomon is asking you to do, what the teacher is asking you to do in getting involved in community and helping others and allowing yourself to be helped, it's not that easy. And it takes a lot of effort and commitment and following through on things that you said you would do, even if you wouldn't. And I imagine that for some of you, especially those that are very involved and you feel like, you know, church is a very important part of your life, you've asked yourself the question, is this worth it? Like, I'm pouring a lot of time and energy and money and emotional strength into church and into this ministry and into being involved, and you've probably asked yourself the question, is this worth it? Why am I doing this? Right? Is this turning into another meaningless, heavy toil work that I have? And in that moment, I just want to remind you that 
Whenever you get to that point where you seriously ask yourself that question about, should I continue being involved? What is the point? Is it worth being involved in this community? Or maybe if you're someone here that you've kind of had your foot out the door this whole time and you're like, yeah, I mean, I, could, I know I should be involved, but I feel like I really don't need to and I'm really content with where I am in life. Might I, might I ask you this question, at least something to consider? That being a part of community, putting yourself in an environment that's conducive to serving, to helping others, to allowing other people to be part of your life, putting yourself in an environment that encourages you to not live strictly for yourself is not just a benefit to the community, but it benefits you in that it helps you, according to Solomon, according to the teacher, according to even secular wisdom, living for others and taking yourself out of the center of your life inherently gives your life more value and meaning. Because again, none of us want to end up in the shoes of the person that Solomon describes, someone alone with money and material possessions asking yourself, was all of this worth it? I imagine for a lot of you parents, if I were to ask you, why do you work? Why do you do what you do? Why do you get up? Why do you go to a job that you may not want to go to every day? Why do you make those sacrifices? For a lot of you, the answer, and it's not even a hard answer, it's, it's for my kids. I'm doing this for somebody else. And on a microscopic level, that's exactly what Solomon is talking about. Creating an environment, putting yourself in a group, in a community, building a relationship that allows you to help others and to be helped yourself. And that effectively takes you out of that situation where you live your whole life just for yourself. And being part of a community, again, encourages you to live with and for others. Because in a sense, this practical teaching that the teacher gives in Ecclesiastes. It reflects biblical truth that ultimately the human experience was designed to be experienced with and for others. And when you take that away and you place yourself at the center of your life and all that you really need is your needs, your wants, your desires, you'll find that slowly but surely the heaviness and the confusion and the meaninglessness of life will slowly start to creep back in. And I just hope that today you leave here with a changed perspective on what community can be in your life. Not so much what you're giving to community, but what community allows you to do for your own life and how it gives you meaning and benefits you and allowing you to live the life that you were designed to live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you again for this reminder that you've given us. And for a lot of us, I imagine this, this experience of of experiencing burnout and tiredness and the meaninglessness of all the toil is something that a lot of us here have experienced, Father. And Lord, it can be a pretty dark place to be where you have this crisis of why we are doing what we're doing, who we're doing it for, Father. But in those moments, you remind us, Father, that you've designed us to live a certain way, Lord. You've created us with a purpose, and that purpose was not that we would live just for ourselves. That in the commandments you've given us to love you and to love others, you did that because you knew that that is the best way that we can live our lives. That when you created us, that was the purpose you put into our hearts, Father. Lord, you know, and I know that many people in this church know that being a part of community isn't necessarily the easiest thing. It's not always the most convenient thing, and at times it requires us to make sacrifices. Father, I ask that in those moments you give us strength and encouragement to remind us that in living for others, we not only fulfill your will and do a good thing, but we truly ultimately fulfill a deep need in our own lives. And you help us to live the way that you desire to live, Father. As we go from this place today, Lord, may that, may that principle and that love for others be rooted in our lives. I praise you in your son Jesus' name. Amen.